When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to That Gabby Roslin Podcast with me, Gabby Roslin. In this episode, I chat to the gorgeous Russell Tovey, you'll hear what a fangirl I am, uh, who I completely adore. We talk everything from trusting your inner voice getting hot and sweaty under the sheets on the set of Him and Her, his love of condiments and his hero Robin Williams. We talk about his successful podcast Talk Art, working on Being Human and the multi-award winning Years and Years and of course the phenomenon that was The History Boys plus his new mystery drama series The Sister available to watch now on the ITV Hub. I was also delighted to have a quick chat with the very sweet and talented Pippa Bennett-Warner. We talked about Skies, Gangs of London, Sitting in Limbo, the BBC drama about the Windrush immigration scandal, also the female-driven harlots, working with the swoony and gorgeous Richard Gere in Mother, Father, Son, and also she got career advice from none other than Brian Cranston whilst working on the film Wakefield. Plus, Pippa talks about Roadkill, one of the biggest dramas of 2020, which is out now on the BBC iPlayer. First up, the delicious Russell Tovey. I think it's really embarrassing how I fangirl over you. I don't. I love it. <laughs> don't be oh, embarrassed. It's ridiculous. It's fine. I was getting embarrassed when I said to my uh, youngest this morning, take her to school. She said, oh, who, who are you interviewing today? Uh, Russell Tovey. She said, Mum, why is it every time you say his name, you go all giggly? It's nice for my confidence. Thank you very much. Do you know what I was watching last night? You, as in the ketchup commercial. That one awards the advert. I was like um, 12, 12 or 13 then, yeah. Here's to the child and all he has to teach us. How true is that right now? Absolutely. Now, I, I can remember filming that advert. It's a really weird thing that some jobs I can't remember at all, but that advert, even though we did it all in a day, is something I, I, can, I really have a lot of visual recollections of shooting. Really? Yeah, which is weird, isn't it? I remember the audition. I remember I had to pretend I was at a bus stop and just stand there and there was loads and loads and loads of boys my age, a bit younger, a bit older, who at the audition. And I remember just having to pretend I was at the bus stop waiting for a bus and there was no lines or anything. It just, you just had to, I think they just wanted you to be. And I remember time going like, just don't do anything. And then I can remember filming it and I can remember the guy who played my dad being really tired and at the end of the day, the makeup team kept coming in. I could hear everyone going, like, just put some more under his eyes. Can we just get some more makeup under his eyes, please? Because I think he was just, like, flagging. And, yeah, which is really weird, isn't it? But then other jobs I've done, I can't remember at all. Does that really throw you when you're interviewed on, on, on TV shows and they, they play something in and you think, 
did I do that? <laughs> yeah, or they bring up a job and you're like, what? What was the character's name? And you have to like go through like the file of facts in your head of everything, <laughs> everything you've done. You said file of facts? Yeah. You're not old enough to remember file of facts. Oh, yeah. Well, we just actually, we just interviewed Sir Paul Smith uh, for Toolcart, which will be coming out later. And he is the reason that file of facts was such a success. Did you know that? No, tell me. So Filofax was run by this little company under the arches somewhere in London. And they were selling like 80 a year. And Paul Smith came in and went, I really love this product. Souped it up a bit, made the cover a bit sexier. And then sold like thousands and thousands and thousands of units of Filofax. And it was all because Paul Smith swooped in and saw it as something that gentlemen would desire or people would desire. And then made it a massive phenomenon. And this little company like owe their life. To Paul Smith. Oh, see, I love stories like that. Yeah. How come some people just know that's what's going to work? You know that there are some people, it's like probably you with jobs, not probably, but absolutely you with jobs. You just know what's going to work. But those people that, you know, those entrepreneurs that say, ah, now you know what, if you do that with it, it's going to fly. They've just got this thing, haven't they? No. Well, I guess that's why the Dragon's Den's a huge success. But all you can go on is is your instincts, isn't it? And I mean, I think Paul Smith's probably got incredible instincts at this stage or that at that stage. And I guess when it comes to work, you just got to, I've been doing it long enough that I sort of trust my instincts. And even if I, even if my instincts are a bit not 100%, if I really believe in the character and I'm really excited to play that role, then I will go with it and trust them instincts. Have you ever had that gut feeling when you know you shouldn't, but you still did in life, not just character? Oh, in life? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> but doesn't everyone, doesn't, doesn't everyone go against the advice of everyone else? No, I think in life, absolutely, there's things where people have advised you not to do stuff and you do it and you either get burnt or it comes out great. Um, but you, as long as, I think I've always been someone that's uh, definitely listened to my inner voice and definitely trusted that as I've got older and not doubted it. And I think that's something that, comes with age and experience. And I wouldn't have been as confident with that when I was younger. But then there's, you know, then everybody always says, oh, well, if you made those mistakes, then do you regret them? And I, I this is something I believe, that you should never have regrets because it's made you what you are. Yeah. I think in time, I think in the moment when things happen, um, you wish you'd never done that. Uh, but as you get older, you re- recognise how they have made you who you are, absolutely. But at the time when you do things that are really scary, you think, like I, I used to smoke a lot of weed when I was younger and I got really like screwed up on it. And I, for years I regretted doing it because it made me anxious. It really affected me. And I wish I hadn't, I wish I hadn't. But as I got older, I realised that the, the effects of that really matured me uh, and made me more self-aware of my own emotions and what I was capable of and what my limits were and made me recognise in myself um, how far I could push myself. But creatively, it also opened up uh, a range of characters and emotions which I wasn't aware of before, which now I have control over. But at the time, yes, I wish I could. Uh, in that moment, it was the biggest mistake of my life, doing it because it scared me so much. But in retrospect... Absolutely, it's made me who I am today. But you wanted, you knew what you wanted to be from from tiny because you started acting when you were ten. Did, was it yeah. the ten you were in the bill? 
Yeah. I was playing a traveller in a beer and I, I threw a foot threw a football at police officers. I didn't kick it because I can't play football save my life, but I threw it <laughs> and said, get off our site. Uh, and I was, uh, yeah, I was going drama clubs from age 10 uh, all over uh, Essex. My mum would just sort of drive me all over the place, which was amazing. My mum to be one of them mums. It's like, what do you want to do? I'll take you. And I that's was... so lovely. Yeah, amazing. And, that's, and I sort of came alive there. That's where I worked out who I was. But when your dad was saying, come on, you've got to join the, the coach firm... Did you, was there everything in you that just thought, no, I'm going to break free? Or was there a part of you that thought, I need to do this for my dad? No, I think my instincts at the time were telling me, firing in all cylinders, no. And I think at one point they sort of approached me saying like, do you want to do your coach license just in case? And I was like, no, because I know you'll do it. I have this ability to drive a coach and I'll be getting called at like, 4am because something's broken down in the M25 and you need to do it for the family son you need to get up and like no I've got a play reading tomorrow so it's uh no I knew and my brothers uh went into it and was amazing and uh no I sort of went off and did my own thing and thankfully I was allowed to do that with no bad feelings I'm so pleased you did as well. But you've got to write that because when I read about all of that, because obviously now you're a podcaster with Talk Art and you've mm-hmm. got your book out and you've mm-hmm. done your writing films, you want to direct, all of those things. Mm. That is a story. That is just the perfect ITV, wonderful drama that we'd all watch that's uplifting. Really? And What, about- like what, that? how though? How does it, what's the, what's the narrative of it? Okay, so... Well, you, it's your life. Is there's there's a family in Hornchurch. Were you from Hornchurch? Is it well, Hornchurch? Well, from, from Romford, but I went Romford. to drama club in Hornchurch. Yeah. All right, okay. So you're from Romford. You're the the coach firm. So it's all the people that go on the coach. Yeah. It's your dad. It's your mum. Your mum's suddenly now not working at the coach business because she's too busy with her 10-year-old son taking him to be in The Bill, which was one of the biggest shows on telly. <laughs> it's yeah. there. And then he ends up in San Francisco. Yeah. I don't know why I'm putting him in, but you have been in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I was there doing a TV show, yeah, for HBO. Oh, I like it, you see. I think it's nice. Amazing. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's not. It's been very nice, but I don't know if it's an ITV. I don't know where the hook is. Just like it's a lovely journey. Watch something. Well, really maybe nice. I know. I've got it. I've got it because Go of course on. you were voted the best werewolf in the world because of George uh, and being human. That right. in fact you were always a werewolf. That's a good twist. You know, that's kind of like Sixth Sense. Who All liked ketchup? Who put ketchup on everything? Yes. And every week would watch. Dead Poet Society. Every every week would. Yeah, exactly. That's a good hook as well. See, I know you well. Yeah, you do know me very well. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you know what? When you go through all of the things that you've done, you are mm. something very unique. I don't think there are many actors like you in the world, and that's why you continue working. And I think it's because you have, not only are you a great actor, but you have this wonderful positivity and philosophy about the job. But you've got, there's a deeper thing with you and I can't put my finger on it. Can you? I would, I, all I know is that when I'm acting and connecting, I'm, I'm very instinctive. I'm not, I don't, I wouldn't say I'm technical at all. I can do technical things like props and everything. But when it comes to the acting, I'm very instinctive and uh, I think I hold on to a lot of emotion in my real life and then use that for the characters I play. And I think I've always been determined that the characters I play have emotional depth. And I know I know what I'm trying to do is the feeling that I had, you just mentioned Dead Post Society, the feeling that I had watching Robin Williams. I remember watching that and thinking, 
I want to make other people feel the way that I feel watching him by watching me. And I remember that as a kid, feeling like that was my drive. I was like, I want the ability to do that. I want to be able to dance around emotionally with these characters. I just remember being so inspired by how he made me feel that I wanted to be able to do that. Did you ever meet him? No. I was, we were at Women's Doing Being Human. When it went out at BBC America, we were over in Los Angeles at some convention thing where you have to promote the show. And he was on the same lineup. But we had to leave and do this next thing. And he hadn't arrived yet. And I was literally waiting at reception. The car was there. And they're going, Russell, get in the car. And I was literally like, I just need to see if he turns up. And we missed him. And then when I was filming in San Francisco and looking, he lived obviously uh, over the water in San Francisco. And then I would like, I went past like the Mrs. Doubtfire house. And <laughs> I was like in the world thinking, of course, I'm going to bump into him. And then I went up for a pilot that he did for NBC, which is the last TV show he did to play his kind of right-hand man. And it was a, the show was fine. And again, if it, he wasn't in it, it would have been a show that I wouldn't have been that instinctively excited about. But because it was him, I was like, this feels like destiny. I didn't get that. So I felt like there was these uh, barriers or tiny opportunities and it never happened. And then obviously he passed away. And that was like I sobbed. I absolutely sobbed. And just for him, for the pain that he was going through, and I guess also for myself as a kid, just feeling like, because that's like your he- absolute hero. And understanding that feeling when people's heroes pass. The way, like, my brother loves David Bowie. I, I love David Bowie. I'm not like a Bowie Bowie head. But people that are, I get that feeling because that's how I felt about him. The fact that I didn't ever know him, but what he did touched so many people. It's amazing. And only, only our culture can do that. What a gift. How did your brother feel then when David Bowie gave you a standing ovation in the History Boys? Did you tell your brother? <laughs> yeah, of course. I'm probably probably a bit pissed off. <laughs> but no, it was just yeah, that was that was mad because he was wearing a white suit and he's with a man, and he led the standing ovation. I remember us looking at it and I was like, "That's David Bowie in a white suit standing up for us in our in our little play at the National Theatre with a man next to him." It was just like. It was we that show. I don't think even now is like. I don't think we understand what a zeitgeist that captured, how that show kind of defined culture of that time, because it's still relevant today. And I watched it at the start of lockdown. I hadn't seen it since the premiere because my boyfriend was like, "I want to see the Hitch Boys," and I was like, "Oh, okay." I cried all the way through for nostalgia reasons, but because I really understood it now. In these t- 14 years that have passed, I understand the emotional journey that them characters are really going on, especially the adult teachers, which at the time when I was in the show were not really, I hadn't lived enough life to fully appreciate their story. And it's only now that I'm like, wow. And I know that in 10 years I'll watch it again and be like, oh my God, now that makes sense. And that's the magic of that film. And it is actually a really good film. And I just was so... It was such a wave that we were riding and went to the premiere and Charles was there and Camilla and it was such a a moment. And then it just stopped for months when I got back and I think I've just sort of not gone near it again since. So it was really amazing to do that again. 
Yeah, I, I've, I've read that you said it was like being in a boy band. because I, I remember seeing it on yeah. stage at the National. I saw it twice. I thought it was phenomenal. I've always bore you with that because um, every time I, I chat to you, I go on about the History Boys. But it, it was a phenomenon, and there's not many yeah. things you can say that create that buzz around the world. But well, not you, theatrically, no. No, I, not. you say you were like a boy band because you got in. A, yeah. you arrived in America on Broadway and yeah. it must have just been extraordinary. Yeah, it was, it was insane, but we were also kind of spoiled because the show everywhere we went had this fan base, had these people queuing around the block for returns, had everyone at stage door. It was because, I think because it was like us boys... And whatever your taste, whatever you was into, it followed like you were the Spice Girls or your One Direction, whoever you kind of had an affinity for in life, we we could have ticked them boxes. And, and the show just, like, I guess gained momentum. It's like this hysteria around it. And that, that was amazing. But, yeah, we were spoiled. We just assumed that that would be everything we did for the rest of our lives. And I remember the older actors, Francis De La Torre and the late Richard Griffiths and Clyde Merrison saying... It's not going to be like this. Every job isn't like this. And us all going like, yeah, yeah, maybe not for you, but this is us now. And it isn't. <laughs> you know, I've been incredibly fortunate in my career, but moments like that that really become kind of part of cultural history and become part of like the syllabus. And then you see all these posters constantly of everyone playing these characters, but that's setting up the cover, the poster that we did, the photo shoot as their like front cover of their play bit of their like poster advertising it is always so crazy and people like direct mess me all the time like i'm playing raj in my school play or i'm playing raj in my dinner piece from my degree show and da, da, da. and you're like wow that's how much it permeated um culture and that was a, that's an amazing thing what i always find interesting is that any of the guys that were in it you're always all asked about it but you, you very much seem to embrace that you're very happy to talk about it and and what an extraordinary time it was. Mm. Like you said, it also all suddenly ended. That must have been a very abrupt end. Yeah, because the journey had been like two and a half years. Then the film came out and the film didn't have the effect that the play had and it sort of came out and then sort of petered out. And then I thought then there was no work. I remember there was like... I had about five or six months of nothing. And I think we'd all been spoiled and told, you know, we're going to come back and this is going to be, you're all going to be Billy Elliot. This is going to be like, everyone's going to get their opportunity. And it just didn't happen for me at that stage straight away. And it was really hard and you are swept up in it. Uh, so, yeah. And, and what you're saying about the boy band, girl band thing is that everyone will always ask, anybody's been in the boy band do you see the others do you see this person do you see yeah. that person and it's just isn't that that's what the history boys is everyone we are we were like a little band that's right i get that everybody asks me about chris evans always i mean no matter of ev course everywhere yeah. do I go. you do you speak to him still i do absolutely and i love the man <laughs> Good. and it's very funny because that's the first thing that people i sort of see this look in their eyes you probably get that as well you see some they look in their eyes you think Oh, they're going mm. to History Boys. And I go, oh, they're going to Chris Evans. Here we go. But is it not a generational thing for you? Is it not like a Big Breakfast? Like I grew up watching Big Breakfast. Yeah, but most people, the journalists want to know if we ever slept together. We never did. Do they still ask that now? Yeah, they do. Ugh. In fact, people stop me in the street every so often and say, and I've said, Chris <laughs> and I laugh it? about you it. checked it? Oh my God, what? They go, did you and Chris? I go, no, we didn't. 
Still to this day. Still. Oh, it's mad. Still. It's mad. It's mad. madness. Mad. And, then like, and like someone on the street, you're going to be like, well, don't tell anyone, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> but nobody knows. It's like, yeah, they've caught you at the You'd right be the time. Person. Yeah, just what I need to tell you. Exactly. <laughs> Outside Greg's, I need to tell you because I've been wanting to tell everyone. Can we just talk about Paul Newman? Because did you really meet Paul Newman? Yeah, we met so many people. Again, that was the thing about New York is that you have superstars come backstage and they all come backstage because they the thing in New York and Broadway is that if a celebrity's in they will come backstage it's just a given to say hello and everyone's everyone's welcoming whereas in London if a celebrity's watched a show and they come backstage everyone's like who do you think you are you think we want you think think if you're not if you're not Meryl Streep why are you coming back I don't care I don't care. And if they are there, you're like, oh, why are you arrogant? That's obnoxious. Why do you <laughs> think we so want to meet British. you? But in New York, it's so British. But in New York, we're like, wow, yeah, absolutely. Oh, my God, I can't believe it. But we had Julia Roberts, Tom Hanks, Paul Newman. Then Harrison Ford and Calista Flockhart were there one night. And we all run down. We're just like, oh, my God. And they were like, hey, hey, hey. And the thing is, they hadn't intended to come back. Their security guards had put them in stage door because <laughs> they waited for their car. But then we all came downstairs at the same time and we were like, thanks for coming back. And they were like, sure, absolutely. Well done. But they had no intention. And did Paul Newman really turn up all everywhere with one of his sources? Because wasn't that the, the urban myth? Yeah, he poured a bottle of uh, salad cream out of his inside. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. <laughs> he gave every one of us. He always carries like, you know, there's eight boys. So he had like eight <laughs> different condiments in every pocket. And they would just pull them out and gifted us them. No. Oh, I love a I condiment. Then we're going back to bloody ketchup. We always do, Gabby. Okay, your favourite condiment, you can't say ketchup. Tartar sauce. As long as it's like a fish finger sandwich, loads of butter, tartar sauce. Thank you. Do you ever put your peas in your tartar sauce? No, but that's a really good idea. What an idiot. What an idiot I've been all these years. Do it. <laughs> um, also, there's a lovely thing that I read about um, when you were doing him and her which I can't believe I didn't know this and and when I've spoken to you about him and her before that it just got very sweaty and everybody saw everybody's bits yeah. because you just got because you were in bed all the time yeah. all, t- all day long sweating on them sheets eating like chicken and meat and bread and sweets and they all just get caught up in the in the duvet and sheeting and and it's a hot set so we're all sweaty yeah it was it was gross it was gross. I'm surprised we didn't all get scabies. Like, that went, but you enjoyed that show, didn't loved. you? Loved. My God, I loved it. Every day was funny. Funny, funny, funny. And everybody was funny. And between, I wish they had like behind the scenes filming because between every take, we would, every, everybody in that show was a storyteller. Everybody loved to get up and tell stories. And we would hear the same stories again and again and again. And we'd be like, tell that st- do that story again, do that story again. And you'd know the punchline, you'd know what the story was, but you just loved the journey of these stories that would happen again and again and again. And everyone would howl. It was a really amazing job and so well written and so well directed that it just felt really, really easy and fun and beautiful. Oh, isn't that lovely? See, you were talking about laughter. And at this, we always ask everybody what makes them laugh, but I think laughter, and you love a giggle. Oh, God, yeah. What makes you laugh? What makes you properly howl laughing? Oh, God. My mates, I guess taking the piss out of my mates. 
I love it. I love being inappropriate. I love being like... You love being inappropriate? Yeah. And that's just the best yeah, answer. Yeah, but also, but also in America, because there's a lot of, uh, you know, our British wit is very sarcasm, sarcasm-based or ir- irony-based uh, or satirical. And over in America, them things go over people's heads. So you can say things that takes them. You can see them computing it going like, what did he just say that? Do you mean that? Oh, oh, that's sarcasm, isn't it? And you're like, yeah. And I th- then that just tickles me is just testing, you know, there's such a, it's such a unique quality we have. I think we don't even really appreciate it as kind of like a, a country that we have an understanding and a capability of sarcasm and wit. And it's quite an intellectual um, quality to have to, you know, to, to language, to subvert it like that. But we do that effortlessly. And, other, and you, you only really recognise how good we are at it when you go to other countries and they just don't get it. I love that. Do you know what else you've got? I think I've said this to you before, but you have the twinkle. You have that twinkle in your eyes. You just... You just I remember seeing you on a roof at a party and um, uh, and you had your lovely dog. Um, Rocky. And, yeah. yeah, Rocky. Oh, I remember saying to you, you're naughty. And there is there's that there's that <laughs> naughty bit in in the corner of your eye and I love people that have that yeah, naughty yeah. twinkle. Yeah, I love that. I, I, yeah, che- I think cheekiness as a quality is really beautiful in other people. I've really appreciated that. I think people, some people get frustrated working with me because I can twinkle without doing anything and they're like, you made me laugh. I'm like, I haven't done anything and I haven't done anything. But yeah, there's nothing better than making someone else corpse, making someone else laugh and there's nothing better than someone having a shit day and you've been able to make them laugh that oh, when, yes. if someone can give you that gift that is magic that is better than anything you could give them and right now that's what everybody needs i know uh, yeah. so let's talk about your podcast then because it's a huge success talk art and now there's a book yeah the book comes out may next year uh which is uh basically a guide talk arts guide to the art world um we started it 2018 august 2018 just to be geeks because I'm a massive art geek and one of my best mates is as well. And we just wanted to geek out with our like heroes and uh, it grew and then got more attention. Then it's just grown and grown and grown. And we've had over a million and a half downloads now, which for a niche show about art is really unheard of. We're told. Uh, So that feels exciting to bring art, to the masses because it's normally seen as very highbrow and academic and elitist and unaccessible. And all we've challenged and championed is making it accessible. Art is for everyone. Be a geek, be enthusiastic, enjoy it and have fun because I love it so much and it makes me so happy. And if I have a shit day, I can go and see some art and it invigorates me and it literally does. And that's all we've ever tried to do. So the fact that it's getting heard by so many, many people is really uh, brilliant. Isn't art everywhere and people just don't realise that they appreciate vision and, and what they're looking yeah, at? Yeah, well, you look at public art, that's for the public. It is what it says in the tin. And the fact that there is so much public art is because as, a, as humanity, we need to be surrounded by culture and we're surrounded by these things because it makes it aspirational, it makes it more enjoyable, it makes you want to be around these things. There are so many statues that you wouldn't even recognise that are peripheral, but they're placed there purposefully to enhance our lives, to make the day better, to experience other people's stories and other people's gestures to humanity. And 
you may not even be aware of it, but you are experiencing art everywhere you go. And especially what you were saying about the top of the building, about design and architecture, it's all been created by humanity. It's all been created by ideas and um, striving to better and to show off the best of what it is to be human. And I think people who say, I don't get it, I don't, I don't understand it, I don't feel like I see enough. It's like, you are seeing it every day. Design in itself is art. And the, uh, what, what upsets me is the, you know, when schools say, well, art isn't important. And I know, I find it Oh, offensive. it really is. And what, what a child, when the child gets a pen and just does a, a doodle or a scribble or a piece of art, whatever they want to call it, they can say, I've just been scribbling, I've mm. just been doodling, I've just been making this. And somebody says, oh, that's good, but why did you give him an extra big head? Why not? You know, that, I love that kids have got that yeah. magic at their fingertips. The way that children draw, there's, there's like art movement, which people aren't aware of that much, which is outsider artists. They call it art brute, which is self-taught artists or disabled artists or non-verbal artists or people that are... Uh, making art outside of the commercial art world, outside of any incentive for anybody to see their work, they're just making it for themselves. And there's been so many like, sides of the art world that we've been connecting with and understanding, exploring through talk art. And this whole um, place where people are making art for art's sake, some of the work you see is just magnetic and they have this childish quality because they're not making it for... Uh, critique they're not making it to be consumed they're not making it to, for the mass media or the mass market they're making it for themselves and when someone's making art for themselves their message is so much uh, clearer and so much more inspiring than without than if they were being judged so when, when it comes to art it's like it has to be when 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 the government are like pulling away funding for the arts and everything. It's just offensive yeah. because all art is is storytelling and all we are as humans are storytellers and the way we connect in humanity and make the world better is through culture. And if you take that away, then you're completely stripping the world of an ability to communicate in a way that is subliminal, in a way that is like um, subconscious because that's how humans do it. And that's why I have a big, big, big issue with the arts just being seen as superfluous. Because what remains when we are all dead and gone is the art. Every civilization that has passed, cavemen, what's left behind? The drawings. The Egyptians, what's left behind? The artistic, the artifacts, the ephemera they made for the pharaohs. What's left behind is these things that have been created to tell stories. So... It isn't superfluous. It is a lifeline. It is what we are fundamentally about. It's amazing to hear you talking like that because I, I, I believe that so strongly. And I just think, you know, the kids say so much without without saying it through art. And it's so important. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm just weirdly that just made me think of years and years, because if you think of a lot of art these days, it's all on computer or it's uh, I mean, years and years, as you know, yeah. I was blown away by it. it was one of the most extraordinary bits of television me too i was totally blown russell away t davis well. actually i interviewed him for this um a, a little while back a couple of weeks ago uh, and i was going on about it then i mean it's just he it's it's what it is it's what we're living in now yeah i know he's a witch because that came out and everyone was like was if as if that's i mean it's scary if that would happen can you imagine it's like oh no we're in it yeah 
and it's kind of getting worse than that and it's all coming true and worse than so yeah it's terrifying that show was incredible to be a part of and to play Daniel Lyons to be able to inhabit him and tell his story and for that story to affect so many oh, people in such a visceral way yeah. and it, it deserved every award that it got um uh i mean see for me television i'm passionate as you are about art i'm as passionate about yeah. television i think television is yeah extraordinary and people keep saying oh it's not the glory days yes every day is a glory day of television it might just yeah, not be the thing that you're finding at that moment that captures you. But um, can we now talk about The Sister, which is available now on the ITV Hub? Everyone is talking about it. So for anyone who hasn't watched it yet, can you explain what it's about? It's a thriller, but fundamentally it's a love story uh, about this guy who made mistakes in his youth and how 10 years later he's been trying to keep Pandora in the box and Pandora is desperately clawing her way out of that box and he's scrambling to push her back in. And it's written by Neil Cross, who wrote Luther. Brilliant. Nice. So it has has that energy. Yeah, br- amazing writer. Amazing writer. And just, it's, it's. I don't think people would have seen me act like that. Oh, really? Uh, I really, yeah, I pushed myself. I tried to push myself somewhere else with playing Nathan in The Sister. I don't think there's a lot of twinkle, as you're <laughs> saying, in that role at all. I think he's a man that's filled with trauma and trying to stay buoyant when all he wants to do is die and he can't, he can't, he's, he's made this life for himself where he's fallen in love with this woman and he has to make it, it, she is fundamental to his lifeline, her happiness and the love they have for each other is what drives him and what comes back from the past threatens all of that. That twinkle, obviously, that's you as a real person. You as an actor, you know, to be able to... I, I also heard you saying uh, when I went down a, a, a Russell Tovey rabbit hole, which was completely joyous yesterday, um, but you <laughs> said the best thing about acting is pretending to be other people. Yeah, I mean, and I always assume that everybody wants to do that, and they obviously don't. Pretending to be other people is just... I think you cherry-pick from your own emotional journey and then you, you you take those elements and you put them into these characters you play and you want these characters to speak to people and you want people to connect with them and you want people to hang out with them or learn from them or be entertained by them. And there's something fundamental to acting is that you just want to tell as many stories as possible. I've got my stories as Russell Tovey, but then I'm like, if I can tell all these other stories through being me, there's what a gift to be able to do that. It is. It's a gift, and you've got. You certainly got that. Um, okay, let's go back to your childhood. Yes, I've read that you were an avid collector of stuff. Yeah. yeah. What stuff did you collect? Oh God. Uh, I mean, from a young young age, I got given a metal detector, so I used to dig bits of old <gasps> metal up. And I remember I had a bit of old fence, and I took it into school, and I said it was a Saxon sword, and I think the teacher <laughs> said, I, the teacher said, I think it might just be a bit of. Victorian fencing still old but it's not I wouldn't say it's a Saxon sword and I think I would build these imaginative narratives to all these bits of old <laughs> shit that I dug up and uh, I then collected rocks and minerals and fossils for my eighth birthday my parents said what do you want to do and I said I want to go to the annual rock and mineral society convention 
which no. was in uh, a school hall in Collier Row in Romford. And I sat there oh. with my parents at eight years old looking at agates and geodes and fossils oh. and with all these old white men who are probably 60 plus who had been digging them up for years, fascinated. And they must have looked at me and thought, what the hell have we created? Oh. I collected phone cards, I collected coins, I collected key rings. I then went on and I collected Star Wars figures and old toys from like the 60s, 70s, things like Buck Rogers. And then when I discovered art, everything else went out the window and that became the thing that uh, has been a lifelong uh, pursuit. But what's happened to all of those things you collected? Have you still got them? I still got all my Star Wars toys. I've got all the original figures and they're in a box and I don't know what to do with them. At one point I was going to put them all in like a big plexi frame in a bathroom so you could see them all, but I don't know I'm going to do that now. I don't know what to do with them. I'd probably give them to my nephews and then they might just stick on eBay. But there's other things I've given away. There's other things I've like sold. It's like, you know, and over the years they just sort of get passed on like one minute you love like books and books of phone cards from all over the world remember the phone cards used to have like images on so you'd have like the mercury ones with harry enfield on and then you got ones from all so all around the world did that so i had all these phone cards from all around the world every time i went holiday i'd buy the phone cards with the pictures and then one day i was just like i don't want phone cards anymore <laughs> and then i just had all these phone cards i was like what do you do i don't know where they are now they're in my parents lot oh you've got to make that into a piece of art though I can give it to someone to make up. That's the thing about my collecting of art is that I have no ambition to make art. <laughs> um, also, uh, lastly, we have to talk about the Muppet movie. All right, because I love the Muppets. So you actually Me met the Muppets in real life. Fo- yeah, Fozzie Bear and Kermit. I met, and I was there, and it was a bit of a shambolic day. Why Muppets Most Wanted? What was it? Was just like running behind, and I hung out with Ricky Gervais. He was lovely. And it was, I had to come in with this, I'm a delivery guy, and I had this champagne chest freezer that I bring in with another, uh, with a guy who was like a, a supporting artist. And we have, to, we have to bring this chest freezer in, then I say something, a, a champagne for a Mr. The Frog, and then leave, pull a face and leave. And we did this probably 50 times. No. And this was... A, a, a chest freezer without the innards taken out with champagne in that we were going back and forth. And I remember thinking like, surely they could have, they could have like appropriated this for this filming sequence. But no, they'd literally low loaded a champagne chest freezer that we were walking back and forth. And then I was meant to do this whole dance sequence in it. I had to learn this dance and this song that goes on at the end of the movie where everyone kind of is on this wall. We didn't have time for that. So that got scrapped. So in the end, I just, and I think my line got scrapped. I think in the end, I just walked no. in. I put the champagne freezer down and I sort of do a look and then walk out. And looking back, it was a missed opportunity for the Muppets, I think. But also just like, what the hell was that? <laughs> I don't know what this is. I love that we end with you carrying a chest freezer yes. on the Muppet movie the with all the amazing of my things. Career, yeah. you've done. <laughs> oh my goodness. Russell Tovey, you are a complete and utter twinkling joy. Thank Bless you, you for doing you too. This. I love your positivity. You're also very good news. I think you're wonderful. Thank you very much for having me on. Oh, bless you. Pippa, it is such a joy to talk to you because, you know, when you came into my radio show last time, I I kept going on about what a thrill it was. And then I have not stopped 
seeing you everywhere since you were on. <laughs> and and honestly, it's, you said, well, it's go- it's going to get really busy. You're not wrong. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's been a bit. It's been a bit mental actually since lockdown. I have to say. Well, last time we spoke, it was about I kept getting the name wrong, and I was so embarrassed. Mother, Mother father, son. <laughs> which so we're going to talk about that as well, and then gangs of London. Let's start with that because okay, I, that was an extraordinary um, show, and everyone was talking about it. It was one of those shows, and you've done it again and again because Harlots was one of those, and then but. Gangs of, that was an extraordinary programme. Mm, I know, it's super cool, isn't it? It's, it's kind of just got everything, everything's there and everybody's there. And, and I say, when I say everybody, I mean it's so representative and it's so inclusive. And I was saying to somebody the other day, I was like, you know, it so represents London, the London that we all know and that we all live in. And at least everybody gets to be a gangster in Gangs of London. Do you know what I mean? Everybody gets yeah. to be bad. It's not just, you know, ster- it's not very, it's not stereotypical. It's fair. I think I, I honestly, that's one of the, the, the main things I love about the show is that it's so inclusive. I, mean, I remember sitting at the read through and just being like, this is awesome. This is what London looks like. All these amazing actors and, you know, from different nationalities and different, different ethnicities and everything. It was just great. But that actually, that was what was so powerful about it. It did feel like London, but there was, the violence was extreme. Mm, I know. And I, I, that, and I'm not a wimp, but I was watching it and I felt myself going, oof, oof. Yeah, yeah. But it's kind of addictive watching because even though you're kind of, maybe, you know, you have your hand slightly covering your eye, your eyes yes. definitely still open. You're still wanting to like, engage, but it, it's so violent, but in the best way, I think, if that makes any kind of sense. I love the way that you say you were sitting there in the in the read-through and you just thought, yes. Yeah. So. What happens if you go to a read-through and you think, <laughs> no? <laughs> oh, my God, I've been to plenty of those. Well, read-throughs <gasps> are really scary, actually. Really? Why? Oh, my Tell God, me. they are so scary. So they get loads of tables, trestle tables, and they put them in a big circle with a big, you know, that's like a donut with a hole in the middle. And you can see across the, t- the table and to the side and everything. And you have your name and place in front of you and the scripts and everything. And then, you know, the producers are there, the execs are there, the channel are there, costumes there, everybody, all the actors. And you have to read the scripts. And when it gets to your part, every, I mean, every time it gets to my part, my heart starts racing. Really? Because you, because you never, I never know quite how much to give. Do you give the full performance? Do you give a taste of what it might be like? So I always end up doing a halfway house of kind of giving what I might end up giving, but not giving too much because I don't want to be the only one in the room doing like a full, full on performance. And it's just really nerve wracking. Every time. Is there anybody in the room that's ever done the, oh, majesty, woo, and thrown themselves on the floor and done the whole thing? I'm not sure people have got up, but there have definitely been some big performances. And I'm always, I always, I'm always applauding those people because I'm like, yes, maybe I should have done that. And then it comes to me and I get too scared. Oh, I love that. I love that you get too scared because you're such yeah. a fantastic actress. So, oh, but you. it is that fear, isn't it, as well of performing? Oh my God, isn't it so exposing? And also at uh, the read-through, I never quite know exactly what I want to do. I mean, I, I have an idea of what I want to do, but I haven't rounded out the full character by that point. So it does feel like you're exposing your initial thoughts on the character, which is which is which which can feel embarrassing, you know? Oh, no, I think that's lovely. I love that that's how you feel. I know mm. that's, I, I'm not saying I love that you're embarrassed, but it just shows how real it all is. And, mm. you know, all those people who don't really know the process of acting. Yeah. And unfortunately, as we've all heard in the past couple of weeks, it's not a real job. <laughs> Go and get yourself a better job, whatever I know, it was. I know, I know. 
not. Oh, I know. But but that you are, you know, you still have those fears. And no matter how many things you do, that fear is still there. Completely. And everything you could be doing, a, you know, a, a tiny job or a big job, it doesn't matter. I st- it's still the fear is still there. And I, but I think that's I think it's healthy. I think it's I've had to kind of just accept that that's what I'm always going to be like. And not panic that every time I go into a read through that, you know, that, you know, just knowing that actually when it comes down to it, I can get the words out. Of course. (laughs) And brilliantly as well. And thank goodness for television, funnily enough. I mean, it's just been a godsend. Hasn't it? For all of us, people in the industry, out of the industry, we've been able to escape. And Harlots, of course, they've played that again. Was that lovely, that all being on again? Yes, it was no it was really lovely to to know that more people were going to get the chance to see it because it was such a brilliant show but for so many years it was so hidden away. The first year it was on ITV Encore and Hulu and then the two the two um latest seasons they were both just on just on in America and Hulu so nobody could see it here. So the fact that when we found out the BBC had got the series was just like, ooh, this is really exciting. People are going to get to see what we've been doing for 3 years. Oh, it's brilliant. It was mm. wonderful. And it was all my um, TV reviewers on uh, my radio show were talking about it again and just saying, it's just one of those things you've got to watch because it's, you, it, oh, it's, it was wonderful. Yeah, it's super cool. And, you know, women, directed by women, written by women, yeah. predominantly female cast, produced by women, just all the good stuff. Oh, it was wonderful. But mm. also let's talk about... Um, extraordinary I mean I, I've read a lot of you talking about sitting in limbo mm. Um, mm. the whole I, I suppose for you as a black performer you you know people were were obviously obviously asking you about what's been happening over the past few months and it would be very wrong not to and I think mm. it's it's a conversation that everybody has to have yeah, and I yeah. personally need to learn more you know, of yeah. course I do. I think we all do. I think everybody does. Yeah, um, yeah. But how how have you felt the past few months? Have you felt a shift? I mean, I have to say when all of that, when all of the BLM stuff started, it was, re- it was a really rough ride. I mean, it just, it was very triggering. I know that word is used and sometimes maybe overused, but it was really triggering and brought up so many emotions so many I had so many deep rooted conversations with my parents and my sister and we just yeah and we just kind of went all the way back into our history and because you know my parents are West Indian so that's complicated in terms of looking you know trying to look all the way back and then you know in terms of I mean sitting in limbo uh, was actually supposed to come out in I want to say March and then it got delayed for some reason. And I, I'm quite, I'm not, I wouldn't, you know, I'm not kind of airy fairy spiritual, but I do believe that things happen for a reason. And it got delayed, to, you know, right to the middle, the kind of hot, the sweet spot of, of all the BLM stuff. And I just don't think there could have been a better time for it because it just, yeah. it, it's, it, it, it became part of the conversation. And so many people didn't know that that was happening, that had happened. I didn't, you know, I wasn't really aware of what had happened until I started doing, you know, serious research once I'd read the script and just really started to kind of, you know, find the lay of the land. It's been a really interesting, tricky, upsetting, but positive, hopefully very positive time. And... You know, I think, oh, yeah, again, I'm just really proud. I'm really proud of sitting in the and I'm really proud that it started so many conversations, actually. It's very interesting that you say um, out of the, the upset and the pain, positivity comes. And I, mm. 
I hope that's the case. I really do. Me too. Me too, Gabby. Because I also feel like at this point, it has to be a lifelong commitment to change. It can't be something that, you know, is 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 hot one week on Instagram or, or you know, uh, uh, about a month ago, I did one of those little short films for ITV and they did a whole, they did five across, across the week about uh, Black Lives Matter. And as a channel, ITV are not known for being massively inclusive. It's, you know, they're just not. But they've made such, and they're continuing to make an effort to be inclusive and show that, you know, black lives matter. And so for me, that's a step in the right direction. It's so important though. I mean, the people that I've I've, uh, chatted to about all of this, they say it's so important to see somebody like you on the screen yeah it's so important representation is so important and that you know it's kind of circling then back to gangs of london that's why that show yes is so yes. good because everybody's there everybody's having a chance to to you know everyone's having a go which which i which i like it's just i think it's important also it's 2020 it's like ah come on i just think we've all got to be far more accepting and kind kindness is the key it's what i say all the time absolutely and accepting that we're all different and there's nothing wrong with that oh it's a joy Mm, absolutely we're lucky but let's let's go back to father mother brother sister daughter (laughs) son Um, uncle yeah uh, (laughs) that show was extraordinary i mean richard Gere, brian cranston of course you've worked with yeah i I mean but richard Gere. It's Richard Gere. I know. <laughs> Richard Gere. I know. I had to be so cool the first time I met him. Oh, you I see, was... I couldn't be. I would have just, I think I would have dribbled and cried. I would have asked him to wear that outfit from an officer and a gentleman. You'll see, you're too young to have probably seen that film. No, I've but, seen it. I've oh, seen it. <laughs> that moment where he wears the white. Oh, no. And he lifts her up. I know, such a honey. I know, I know. Well, I grew up in a household with my mum, who, remember, you spoke to on, on, on yes, the first time. Yes, yes, we spoke to your mum. Yeah, yeah. And she um, is obsessed with him. Like, like she, you know, I've grown up with her being obsessed with Richard Gere. So when I when I got the job, she lost it. And then she came down, because I, tur- I turned 30 on, on that job, and I was filming on my birthday. My parents came to set, and I introduced my mum to Richard Gere. And I have to say, she played an absolute <laughs> blinder. She was so cool. Really, so really? Cool. Yeah. She didn't, yeah. And I was expecting her to go kind of be like, <laughs> and she was absolutely fine. She was like, hello <laughs> just completely fronted it and then he was like huh? you know because he's so smooth and so charming and lovely and he like gave the dog some water and all this kind of you know so my mum was just kind of and my dad called him sir it was like a whole thing it was they were very sweet he when he was very sweet with them <laughs> please tell me you have a whatsapp group chat with him i don't oh i don't i know it's such a shame did you just call him richard or did you just go morning <laughs> <laughs> I would have done that. I would have sung the song. I would have gone, love lifts us up. And then he would have, then he would have lifted me up and he would have walked. Oh, no, don't tell him any of this. This is really, if, if you're listening, Mr. Gear, you're more than welcome on the podcast and I won't get your name wrong and I won't go. Blah, blah, blah. That's probably not. I don't think he'll do it now. He'll be terrified. Um, but Brian Cranston as well. And he's, oh, what a divine. guy. He is divine. He's, he's. So I grew up watching Malcolm in the Middle and always thought he was the funniest thing ever. And then you meet him and he's charming, so good at his job, generous, kind, funny as hell. He's just, he's, 
you know, Brian, Brian, Brian Cranston is a legend. He's, he's, oh, I adore that's him. lovely to hear. He's one of those people, because I just think he's a really interesting person and he's really funny. And every time I've heard him interviewed, I've always thought, oh, there's somebody I'd like to spend an evening with. Yes, that, well, that's it. And, that, and everything that you see in an interview is, is him in real life. And he's so down to earth and normal. And oh, just, you know, and just, just, work, like, you know, working. And I remember I was talking to him about something about jobs or something when I was doing that film, film and, and he was like, you know, Pippa, every time you get the chance to act, just say yes. And I was oh, like... Oh, really? Yeah. And that's kind of how I do. I mean, I'm very kind of, I mean, I'm quite picky about what I do, but, you know, once I've, once the job is there, I just, you know, my head is down and I do the job and I, and I go do the job and then I go home and live my life. And, and that, I think... I mean, I don't want to speak for Brian, but that's how I feel he is too. He's he's like he's kind of boots on ground, which is lovely. Oh, that's great. Oh, mm. I'm so pleased to hear that. Right now, let's talk. Oh, oh no! Before we talk about Roadkill, we or we have to because we did it before. We have yeah. to go back to Zavenia. <laughs> oh, Lion King! You were eleven. Eleven. Yeah, eleven. I know. West End show at eleven. I know. Sometimes I think about it and I go, bloody hell. That's actually quite a big deal. And of course, when you're younger, you're so protected by your innocence that you kind of, you know that it's a big deal, but you're so young and, you know, actually, weirdly, back then, a stage is a stage. And I was so devoted to singing and dancing and acting that getting to, you know, getting to do it on, you know, a town hall stage or doing it in the Lyceum Theatre, a stage was a stage. So I was getting to do what I wanted to do. You're just protected by the fact that it's a fun thing to do. But to go into, and the Lion King, which is such, it's a joyful, now that, that is joyful, isn't I it? I know, it's, yeah, I saw it last year and I still cried. Did you? Yes, because it's still, because the story as well, it's the actual like, you know, the bricks and mortar of the story are just so good. And then of course you've got all this brilliant puppetry and the music and the, you know, the added African music and the design, it, just everything. It's just, it's, I think it's sublime. I agree I really with you. Do. And But my my joy of when my kids were younger and going to see that, it's just, it's lovely. And the music is lovely, as you say. Right, let's go to, to Roadkill. Congratulations. Another show that everyone was obsessed with including me and it's still available on the BBC iPlayer give everyone a sort of idea of this show so Hugh Laurie plays um a conservative minister uh who's brilliant oh god he's so brilliant and he's basically attempting to to outrun his past and without giving too much away secrets are exposed and revealed my character I play his barrister and I win a libel case for him at the beginning of episode one and some people bring some to my attention that there is some evidence that uh, get, that could go against him that could uh, bring him down, and so me and I guess others as well, we 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 try and bring him down while he's also dealing with personal issues being exposed to the public. I just think the performances are absolutely brilliant, and the women as well are fantastic. I think David's written brilliant parts for women. I mean, I I'm, do. I love his writing. I love his writing. I love his writing. Though I really. It's just smart, sophisticated, smart, witty. Am I right in thinking David Hare wanted you and that was it? Uh, well, I don't go know. on. <laughs> I go don't. On. Well, I, <laughs> well, I was supposed to. I was supposed to work with him a couple of years ago, and it didn't work actually because of father, mother, uncle, brother, son, <laughs> and um, <laughs> and and um, so when this came along, yeah, I think maybe. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yes. Well, no, I've I've read an interview with him, and yeah. he says. He wanted you and he thinks you're the most sublime actress. 
Oh, he's so sweet. He's and uh, honestly, this is this has been one of my favorite jobs of all time. Uh, doing this, D- uh, I, why? Of, why was it one of your favorites? Well, I think because David's writing is so pleasurable to say, and every scene that you have in a David Hare TV feels almost like a mini play, which is so nice for an actor because TV scripts aren't normally that dense. The the, the dialogue isn't that dense or really that sophisticated a lot of the time. So to get a David Hare script where you every scene I'm in pretty much, the first two episodes, I'm not in it that much, but the the latter two, I'm more. But those the, the scenes towards the three and in episodes three and four, they're like five pages long. And that for an actor is just so enjoyable because you get to, you, it's like the, the juiciest, chunkiest bit of steak um, that you're having an opportunity to take a real bite out of. So, for, so that for sure, and also because on on some level, you know, I would like to think that I I could be a good barrister in a, in another life. <laughs> we shot by you know what location came up first, and a lot of them, all of my big scenes were in one location. So it was a week of just back to back five page scenes. So it was quite that was quite difficult. But are you back filming now? Anything? I'm not. I'm not. And I'm I'm reading stuff and waiting and I don't I'm not I don't feel in a huge rush to go back out to work and also I just I know that gangs will be going in the new year and I'm I don't know I don't, I'm ready to go back to work but I but only for the right thing I can, I'm a bit picky Gabby yeah no that's good it's good now especially with so much going out oh my goodness you know what you so how is your mum we've got to ask I've got to ask you about that oh my god she's she actually sends her love <laughs> oh will you send her my love she's just a lovely, lovely lady. She adores you. She, but have they been? Have they been through all the madness this year? They've been fine. I mean, my my dad was super vulnerable, so I couldn't go anywhere near him for a while, which was really difficult. Um, and I think they've kind of they live in the countryside, so they've been they've been okay. But I think not being able to see my sister and I have been has been really difficult. They have a dog who runs the you know runs the the house literally. But so they, you know she's been keeping them busy. But I think I think the beginning part of lockdown was just so hard because you couldn't see anybody and you couldn't touch anybody. Or and I, I I live on my own and and actually not having any human contact. I think the first human contact I had was eight weeks in and not wow. having human yeah. contact for eight weeks was really, was really tough. It's really tough. Not a Couldn't hug. Couldn't you just call Richard Gere and Brian Cranston? <laughs> I know I should have done. I should, I should have done. And then Zoom to them and done a Zoom with both. Now there's a Zoom I'd like to be. Oh, with. there's the Zoom. There's yeah. the Zoom. Oh, that Zoom, it drives me mad. Um, okay, so I asked this to everybody. What makes you laugh? Because you love a giggle. I just know because I only met you twice, but but yeah, you I love a giggle, giggle, don't you? So what I makes do. you laugh? Okay, I'm going to be corny, but the, the th- my father, he he's he will always be my father. He can make me laugh like that. You click your finger and he's just made me laugh. So I think I'm going to say my dad. That's so lovely. Yeah, he's just and he doesn't even have to. He used to, we used to have my sister and I were growing up. He would we would do this thing where he would just look at us and like pretend that like he was starting to laugh, and he would just make my sister and I laugh, <laughs> and he can still do it. And so it's it's, I don't, it's a little thing that we have as a three, but yeah, my oh, dad. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> Laughing is important. Goodness. Oh me. my god, I laugh all the time. I'm such a laugher. You're right. I really I, am. Well, I love that of you. <laughs> oh, I, do you know, I, I'm so thrilled that you're on this podcast because Yay, I just want people that me. are 
good, kind, lovely, fun people. So I'm thrilled that we got you for this. Um, thank you so much. You thank you, person. thank it's you. It's been such a pleasure. I love talking to you. Thank you so much for listening. Please join me next week when I'll be chatting to Strictly Judge Shirley Ballas and the incredibly talented Arian Bakari, who you would have recently seen in his Dark Materials. That Gabby Roslin podcast is proudly produced by Cameo Productions. Music by Beth Macari. Please press the subscribe button and it will come straight to your phone on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you choose to listen. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Yeah. 